Yeah, boy. Welcome to Shook Me the Mooney, episode 84. I, of course, I'm Shug, and we got a lot to get into today. Well, two topics, but, you know, just looking at my notes, I have a shit ton to say. Obviously, later on in the show, we're going to get into Euphoria, episode four, which aired um, this past Sunday, and kind of give a little look forward to episode five and the second half of, of the season where we're halfway there. Uh, it's a eight episode season and um, from a lot of the, the other Euphoria fans I've talked to, you know, they, they absolutely love this episode. I liked it as well. Um, albeit, you know, I, I really enjoyed episode three when a lot of people didn't enjoy it as much. Um, but I thought that this second episode was a good companion to the first episode. So we'll get into that later. Um, of course, award of the week. Um, gonna give out award of the week this week. Obviously, conspicuously, there was no video version of the previous um episodes award of the week. Um, you know what? Because I was kind of like back and forth with it. Um, although I want to celebrate the lives of um Wilbur um Mora and Jason Rivera and the, the sacrifices they made, you know, I don't want to glorify the NYPD. Um, because sometimes when we get into the glorification of the NYPD, we tend to absolve them of a lot of their wrongdoings, you know, whether I be killing unarmed black men, whether I be, you know, stopping frisk, which apparently will be making a comeback at some point. Um, you know, and all those various things throughout their past, you need to look no further. I just, you know, last week I wanted to uh, shed light on these young gentlemen that were actually trying to be a um a sign of change in the um in the New York police force and try to actually live up to the term or the phrase new new york's finest um you know and a lot of in a lot of the reporting i've seen people really don't talk about how one of the young gentlemen the reason why they became a um nypd officer is because you know they saw their older brother being stopped and frisked and you know they knew that wasn't the right way to to um do police policing but i wanted to highlight those um three individual um uh including a young man who um heroically uh was able to subdue the the person who had murdered both of these individuals so that's the reason why i didn't put out a video but this week you know we're back to you know a lot more fun stuff so you will be seeing a video version of this week's award of the week but Obviously, that's for later on in the show. Um, but the the first topic I want to get into today, it's really been, um, you know, setting the sports world and probably mainstream media ablaze uh, the accusations and this lawsuit um, brought upon by former Miami Dolphins head coach uh, Brian Flores um, against the entire NFL and mainly three teams. And one of the teams, of course, is my favorite team is probably probably the second most um, egregious offense done by the teams um, named in the lawsuit, uh, the New York Giants. 
obviously uh, uh, the NFL, uh, just as much as you know, the whole country has a, a issue with representation and racism, whether it be um, regular or overt racism, or just simply be uh, institutional racism and systematic racism. Um, so getting into Brian Flores's lawsuit, um, I believe it was Tuesday, all of this stuff came out where um, he alleged that um, he was incentivized to lose uh, by the Dolphins owner, Stephen Ross, who is somebody who's already kind of like an incendiary individual, um, you know, supported Trump and donated to Trump, held, you know, um, fundraisers for Trump um, on top of that. You know, um, they actually traded, um, he actually traded a player who was very outspoken about the fact that he, um, you know, out of one mouth, you know, he was trying to do, you know, the whole um, social justice, you know, try to Trump ch- champion social justice, but then on the other end was having like, you know, these thousand dollar a plate fundraisers for Trump traded him. So, um, another thing that he alleged is that Stephen Ross also wanted him to take part in a uh, meeting on Stephen Ross's yacht with a prominent QB. They wouldn't name the QB. Obviously, you can't name the per- you can't put the person's name out there because, um, you know that's a whole another um legal um entanglement that could be that could make things far more um confusing as far as you know the 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 legal um stuff goes and where the giants get involved is that the giants made a hire um they hired the buffalo bills um now former offensive coordinator brian dable uh to be our new head coach and apparently they had already had him selected as head coach um when they had their interview with Brian um, Flores and somehow, some way, their former um, boss, Bill Belichick, because both of them used to work for the New England Patriots at one point, uh, he actually texted the wrong Brian, um, apparently, because he congratulated Brian Flores on getting a job that he apparently didn't get or at least that he thought he was in a running for. And Bill Belichick immediately uh, immediately realized he had texted the wrong Brian and um, was essentially like, you know, good luck on your interview. Um, But, you know, I, I, I have to take, you know, I, I, I would believe the much quicker believe the allegations against the Dolphins because – Brian Flores was in the building. He worked for them. He, he worked in that organization for three years, dealt with Stephen Ross for three years. Um, so obviously there's a lot more um, familiarity with how Stephen Ross operates. And, you know, this, these type of things would have been between them. But I think the stuff with the Giants is like 
you know, you could kind of, I'm not saying that they're not true, but I think from a, from the court of public opinion, I feel like you could still give the Broncos and the Giants the benefit of the doubt because um, it was put out there that John Mara had reached out to Brian Flores, you know, before they had even selected a GM to let him know that they would be considering him for the head coaching position um, as they started to, you know, um, gather up candidates. Um, not only that, but, you know, if it was just a matter of, you know, bringing a minority person in to adhere to the Rooney rule, I mean, the Giants... Uh, to to my knowledge, I think they interviewed at least three candidates who were African American in uh, Brian Flores, as mentioned, uh, Patrick Graham, who was the assistant head coach and the defensive coordinator of the team, and apparently will remain in in that capacity going forward with Brian Dable, and. Also, Todd Bowles, who was the former um, head coach of the New York Jets and is actually a, the defensive coordinator of the Tampa Bay Buccaneers. Um, so I, I, I'd be confused as to why like they would hire, they would interview so many African-American candidates and capable and very, very capable and um very decorated coaches, you know, they, they, they do have resumes to back up, um, being hired or considered for a head coaching job. But with these text messages with Bill Belichick, it does, you know, cause a lot of concern and it does, you know, you, you can have the benefit of doubt, but you do have to be open to the idea that these things may perhaps be true. I mean, it was kind of, floated out there that, you know, uh, the new GM of the Giants, um, Sean or Shine, uh, I'm not sure how you pronounce his name. I've only been reading it for the past couple of weeks, but him coming from the Buffalo Bill, the Buffalo Bills organization uh, probably have far more insight into Brian Dable and perhaps felt that if given the opportunity to be a general manager of another NFL team, um, that Brian Dable would be at the top of his candidate list. And, you know, perhaps, you know, he, he still did do the interview with Brian Flores uh, and probably had his mind made up and was just kind of, you know, seeing if his mind would be changed after meeting Brian Flores. And I guess, you know, perhaps he was unshaken, but it is a really bad look for the Giants organization to not have, um, to already have had, their guy already and then you know bringing in other people rather than just simply um expressing that to brian flores the other team that he included in a lawsuit by name is the denver broncos is because he previously had interviewed for their head coaching job and when he had the meeting he alleged that their reps and um the people that he met with they simply were in no condition to perform an interview. He said some people appeared to be hungover um, or at least under the influence. 
And it was a very unserious interview. And essentially what he is alleging here is, you know, what I previously said about the Giants, where it's like he was apparently brought in just to adhere to the Rooney rule. So you're going to hear me say Rooney rule for a while. If you're not familiar with the NFL or even uh, former Steelers owner Dan Rooney, there was a rule put in place, uh, I believe, in the mid-2000s, which stated that in the hiring process, I believe it was initially only for the head coaching position and then expanded into expanded to GMs as well, that when making these hires, at least one minority or person of color would have to be interviewed as for, for as part of your um, hiring process. And essentially what that did was it essentially, it, it put in a quota for these organizations. And once they had that quota met, they would bring in guys for interviews with absolutely no intentions to hire them um, or even consider hiring them and taking their preferences elsewhere to someone who was white and you know take take it from there but brian flores and his lawyers were on espn's get up the next morning and you know they talked about how you know there were other um coaches uh executives that floated the idea that similar situations were going on as far as the hiring process as well as um incentivize losing and one of those people is Hugh Jackson uh I'm not saying he's lying and nor am I disputing his allegations but Hugh Jackson uh, alleged that a similar situation was going on with the Cleveland Browns where it was an incentive to lose and not try to put your best effort into win um but at the same time Hugh Jackson uh, went three and 36 with the Cleveland Browns, um, including one season where he was winless. Um, so it just, you know, when I saw Hugh Jackson um, saying that, I, I knew his, um, you know, uh, notorious record while he was a head coach. And I was just wondering, like, you know, if a guy goes three and 36, where are, you know, where would he go for these extra losses? Uh, you know, I even joked that him and the bank, if he was getting paid, you know, to lose, I mean, he, him and the bank tellers might've been on a first name basis, but seriously, if, you know, that is the case, you know, it's a, it's a very, it's a very serious, uh, it's a very serious matter. And it's, it's incredible because the NFL, when this stuff came out, they quickly denied everything said in the lawsuit rather than, you know, okay, this has been brought to light. Like we're going to do a thorough investigation into this and come to some kind of conclusion and figure out how to rectify these things. And, you know, the extra uh added layer to this thing is that all of the head co all of the head coaching um jobs available that have been filled um before this came to light um a couple of days ago have all been have all been filled by white men um these are jobs in denver 
uh, Las Vegas, Chicago, and of course my own Giants with Brian Dable. And apparently, I believe today it's been reported that the Minnesota Vikings, the Minnesota Vikings actually are are planning to hire Raheem Morris, who was formerly the head coach of the Tampa Bay Buccaneers. Um, off the top of my head, I can't remember which team he was working for most recently, um, but I know he was, you know, a, a defensive coordinator, African-American, young guy. Um, I believe when he was hired in Tampa, he was one of the youngest head coaches. Uh, but it also brings me to another point. Um, his hire, as well as a lot of hires made by NFL teams, of african-american head coaches where essentially they'll hire guys um african-americans to kind of in in my eyes kind of get like that pat on the back like oh yeah they hired a black coach and then bring them into these situations where these aren't very well-built teams and essentially they're there to lose and then they'll tank and tank and tank and improve their team through the draft and just compile, just compile these like horrible records. And then they would let the blame fall on the coach and fire that coach and then bring in another guy who now that they've, you know, rebuilt their roster and they look to compete. Now they give it to this new whitehead coach and guess what? He goes out and, uh, now all of a sudden the team can spend money uh, to try to win. It makes the former African-American coach look even more like incompetent in comparison to the new white head coach, because now this team is succeeding when it was, you know, this guy was basically given a broken down car to restore and he restores it. And by the time it's, you know, time to put the key in the ignition you know, they snatch the keys away from him and just give it to a whole nother um, driver. And this is just, it's its crazy because actually, like, real random, it reminds me of this episode of Wayne's Brothers where Sean gets hired by uh, some kind of, like, corporation. And they basically give him very, like, uh, menial tasks, like sharpening pencils and uh making copies and basically doing errands and stuff like that nothing of significance and he comes to find out in one of these um papers that they were supposed to shred that the company that hired him they're trying to get this government contract which would bring them in a lot of money but the government required that they make an affor- an affirmative action um hire and they must have a certain amount of African-Americans working for them. And I guess, like, Sean, like, filled that quota. And the, 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 the you know, even though he was making, like, a great amount of money to take this job, and the job was very easy work and very, you know, work that was simple work. It was, they didn't hire him for his qualifications. They hired him because they needed a Black person in order to get this government contract. And I think essentially that's the same thing that has, that has been going on 
with the NFL for years. And that's why I bring up the topic of like the Rooney rule, where it's like they essentially bring bring guys in just to meet this quota with no intentions of hiring them. And, you know, the, the sad and crazy part is, you know, what's the alternative to that? Like, do you just get rid of the Rooney rule? Then essentially, you know, the stuff that, the, you know, that type of text that Bill Belichick sent to Brian Flores, that type of stuff would keep going on because guys would or like soon as the head coach gets fired, all of a sudden they have a new white, possibly inexperienced head coach already in line for that job without even giving the thought or even a consideration to an African-American head coach. But at the same time, if you keep the Rooney rule, what's going to happen? All of, you know, people are just going to get these, these token, um, these token jobs. And it's just interesting to me that um, there's a lot of times with these African-American head coaches, you know, they get the one opportunity to be a head coach, put in a situation to fail and the team fails, not so much them and they never get the opportunity again. And, you know, there's been so many uh, black head coaches in this league that have thrived and done um, beyond well, you know, Super Bowl winning coaches like, um, Tony Dungy and uh, Mike Tomlin and Rob Caldwell, you know, who didn't win a Super Bowl, but I think the Detroit Lions, you know, a a franchise that's been a laughing stock for, you know, much of their existence, probably had some of their best years with Rob Caldwell. And he was, you know, rudely fired and replaced with lesser coaches. Lovey Smith, yeah, just so many. It's just been proven over and over that you know coaches are capable when given the opportunity, and you know the the interesting thing is there's still a lot of NFL head coaching jobs, and you know I brought up the Raheem Morris, you know possibly getting hired by the Vikings, um, and now that this like Brian Flores lawsuit is being, you know, class action suit is being brought to attention. It's like sometimes you kind of have to like look at going forward, any head coach and hire now that like the heat is under them to give African-Americans a fair shake and people of color in general a fair shake at being NFL head coaches will more and more teams just hire a black coach just because of tokenism um, and save face. Um, I think the Vikings hire kind of passes the sniff test because, you know, off the rip, like they got rid of their GM and instantly hired an African-American GM. So it already showed that they already had an openness and a willingness to give African-Americans an opportunity. And I hope that that GM is successful. He has a name that's, a lot to pronounce, but I'm saying you, you know, you, you, you know who I'm talking about, and I hope that he's successful. I hope that if it is Raheem Morris, that he's very successful out there in Minnesota, and there, you know, the opportunity is taken, and they try thrive in it. You know, the same thing with like, you know, when the Giants hired Jerry Reese to be an African American head coach. I mean, to be an African American um, GM, and he was there for ten plus years. And won two Super Bowls. I just, you know, a, a lot of it just has to do with 
opportunity and real opportunity and not like, oh, we're going to hire this guy and look like we're progressive because we're hiring this black coach. But it's like, you know, we're going to put him as the head coach of the shitty team. And, you know, if the team goes two and 15 um, the, the first year and then they go, you know, four and 13 the following year, like we're going to get rid of him and then, you know, after you've already picked in the top five, we're going to build a way better football team for this next, you know, golden boy, white coach. But, you know, Flores, he's still up for NFL jobs. Uh, you, you got the New Orleans job and the, the job in Houston. And, you know, it'd be interesting to see if the NFL still plays ball with him in light of all of this, because, you know, obviously with Colin Kaepernick, he challenged the NFL and the NFL basically blackballed them. So essentially the expected thing is that the NFL is going to blackball Brian Flores. I hope that isn't the case. And I hope what comes of it is the NFL looks um, at themselves in the mirror and tries to rectify these things rather than ignore and, you know, squash them. All right. Euphoria episode four. What episode? You know, obviously the show now has kind of consolidated into multiple storylines going on at the same time. Um, so I'm going to just break down uh, each of those. So the first one, of course, is Rue, Jules, and Elliot. And, you know, as I said in the beginning um, of this episode, that it seems like this episode and the last episode are kind of like companion pieces, you know, to explain that to somebody who you know, who hasn't heard that term yet, you know, like a companion piece. Uh, it's essentially two works of art, art that go in concert with each other, where it's like it's best viewed in companion with each other. Um, like, you know, an example of that would probably be, for me, possibly like, you know, Goodfellas and Casino. Like, I think of those two as, like, companion pieces, you know, for somebody else, you would probably say, like, um, I'm obviously going to exhaust Martin Scorsese examples about Wolf of Wall Street and The Aviator. Both similar stories, but, you know, when watched together, you know, you, you kind of see the kinship between the two. Um, and I think the first you know, last week's episode kind of ex explored this, you know, quote unquote love triangle. And to me, I think in this episode, the love triangle kind of got a little bit more clearer where it's, you know, three people connected, but for different reasons. I think Elliot was infatuated with Rue. That infatuation has now, you know, transitioned to Jules. And I think Jules infatuation with Rue has transitioned to an infatuation with Elliot and I think both of their they, they I think they both realize that their infatuation and love um or perceived love for Rue is you know they're caring about her and her well-being you know in various ways and I think like they got closer but they still feel the baggage of caring for Rue. And essentially, 
they spend the day together, you know, playing uh, various games while hanging out, um, through the dare and, you know, all of this stuff. And it really got um, very tense, uh, not in a not in a suspenseful way, but kind of in like an erotic way uh, in the beginning and then kind of transition into more um, tense in a suspenseful way and Elliot and Jules drop Rue off on like the side of the road and somehow some way like Rue found her way home went back to Elliot's house and then prepared to have sex and before they would have sex Elliot admitted that he and Rue had been doing drugs and they've been doing drugs for as long as they knew each other because remember, for as far as Jules knows, Rue is clean. A matter of fact, she's clean even from last season. She's unaware that she relapsed. And the interesting thing is that Jules kind of got over her initial shock and still ended up having sex, uh, apparently, with Elliot. So again, like I said, this love triangle became a little bit more clear where uh, it's Jules and Elliot and they kind of have this anchor on them which is Rue and for whatever reason like Jules and Elliot they won't let Rue weigh them down and that's that's what I took away from the scenes this week and you know something that concerned me last week is you know um Rue's business venture, you know, with uh, Karen, where she's selling, supposed to be selling this, um, all of these drugs in a suitcase. But as we've seen beginning towards the end of the last episode and all of this episode is like Rue's basically using the drugs in the suitcase, which surprises nobody that watches the show. Uh, I've, I've seen it, this, this, you know, we're like, an episode and a half in of her like being a you know drug dealer and she's sold absolutely no drugs but she has obviously comped herself plenty of them drugs and the last thing i'll say about rue jules elliot is i mean like what the fuck did like jules think like a white claw does to somebody um i say that in light of when they were in the car together, you could clearly see that Rue was high as hell. But for some reason, like Jules perceived it as her being drunk. And I'll be honest with you, as a person, you know, who's, you know, drank and partied and stuff like that, you know, as a teen and, you know, back when I was in college and shit like that, I was very disappointed when, you know, they came to the conclusion at Elliot's house that they were going to go and get liquor. And they put on this whole um, ruse, uh, uh, no pun intended, in the uh, liquor store or beer store, or whatever the hell I was, uh, to steal some alcohol. And the alcohol that they stole was White Claw. So I was just sitting there thinking, I'm like, yo, like, Jules must think, like, White Claw, White Claw is, like, lean or, like, at the very least, like, um first recipe for local if y'all remember how that shit used to have people wrecked so that was a, that was my interest in like aside from this episode that i took away other converging plot we have going on is 
also another love triangle, which unlike the Rue, Jules, and Elliot love triangle, actually this one became less clear. Um, actually became a little bit like more blurry and distorted as the episode goes. And first thing I gotta say is, you know, this season thus far has been such a um home run season for Sydney Sweeney. Um, another like just like just stunning like performance. Like I'm not gonna fucking lie to you. Um uh, warm-blooded male so obviously you know I see Sydney Sweeney you know and I think to myself like oh boy them things are thinging um hubba hubba insert freaking um the wolf whistling gif but the more and more I watch her especially this season because it wasn't like she was given like a ton of material in the first season but this season like Every single piece of material that they have given her and every scene that she's in, she's, like, stolen and she's, like, ran away with it. So I just want to applaud her performance um, in this episode, uh, especially, but especially throughout this whole season. And I look forward to seeing what she does with it going forward. And the more and more I see Maddie, like, the more and more I'm disappointed that we're, we don't get to see the Maddie from the bowling alley more like the the part of her with all of the armor like taken off where she's you know a person you could talk to and like connect with like even the scene when she's like talking to Kat about how Kat feels about like Ethan it's like instead of like really being a friend and like talking to her like she did it as like the Maddie we know which is you know very aggressive uh, she uses the R word, which is um, extremely unnecessary, especially in today's society, knowing what we know about neurodivergence. And uh, I, I just I'm just disappointed that like, you know, that moment from I, I believe the second episode was just, it, you know, it, it just seemed like um, just a f- like, like the more and more I'm removed from it, it seems like it was more of a flash in a pan rather than it was actually something you know being ignited and of course we got to see uh sue's howard because uh sue's and the howard fan the howards um hosted maddie's birthday party and sue's howard like she's the best worst mom yet again uh obviously we know she's a little bit more um lenient dare i say she's not even just lenient like she's more like involved in like the debauchery of her children and almost encourages it because like those kids were just like drinking like straight out the bottle like at her house like her house was like the safe haven for like just underage like inappropriateness I guess you'd um detail it but I want to say like shout out to um Alana Ubach who um plays Suze Howard you know, I'm familiar with her. I've been familiar with her work for years, going back to like the 90s. If we all remember, she was in Legally Blonde as one of Elle's friends in Meet the Fockers as um Esmeralda, I think. Um, and also like if you to me, the most famous role of her was um in waiting, where she was the one waitress who was very like 
very like hyperactive and like seemed like she needed like anger management and she was one of my favorite characters in that movie so it's always a pleasant experience seeing her and you know we love um it's always sunny in philadelphia on a show like she played uh the prostitute in frank's um pretty woman episode so i'm a big fan of her um like when they give her like speaking roles in uh when they give her like a lot more screen time in this show, I always love it because you know I'm a I'm a fan of her as like a character uh, actress. You know she's not one of those people like you you know by name, but you know by seeing her. So it's always a pleasant um, time whenever she shows up on anything. And to be honest with you, I think this is probably like the first serious thing I've seen her, and I've always seen her in like comedic stuff. Uh, eventually, like they ended up in a hot tub. And that's where things got really tricky because um, for Cassie, I think she kind of came to terms with the, the realization that Nate wasn't going to leave Maddie for her. And essentially, she was in a rock and a hard place because she wouldn't be able to be with the man she wants. And her quote unquote best friend would be the person that the man of her perceived dreams is going to be with and she still also has to maintain this friendship and she could try to like blow it up and lose both of them which she well I was going to say she doesn't seem to have a willingness to do but when you know Nate broke the news to her that like you know she he was not going to leave he was going to reunite with Maddie and that him and Cassie's relationship could be nothing more than her being his like side piece you know where she basically is like like listen dude I'm like fucking crazy and I don't care I will do crazy shit and even when he like pressed her she like stood her ground and she was like listen dude like you don't understand like I'm crazy (laughs) and you like you haven't even like seen the extent of crazy that I'm going to get and at the end of the episode they had this beautiful scene that where she's in this room like tears in her eyes face red with all of these flowers around her and it's it's something to think about because it's like what is what is going on here like what what is the meaning of this and that's just something that i'm like in anticipation to see just from not seeing i'm pretty sure you've seen it everywhere on um twitter and i've seen it everywhere and more and more i've seen it i'm like wow like what is going to come from this? Like, is she going to really be crazy or she's just going to, you know, fade back into the background? And again, I feel like Lexi's play is when thing, you know, it's going to be like my my prediction is that that's going to be like the the big event of the season, uh, much like the carnival episode of last season. I think her play, her putting on this play and, you know, I, I put out like a tweet where it was like Joanna Scammer where she she's typed something up and then she walks away. And I'm like, yo, because every time you see Lexi, she sees these things, hears these things and types it out on her script. And I just it's I, I feel like every time one of these crazy people on this show does something, bing, bang, boom, like Lexi is putting it into her play. But back to the hot tub scene. Cassie had been drinking a lot and, you know, 
I think everyone who watched it was in agreement. It's like, yo, like if you've been drinking heavily, like a hot tub is not the place to be because the sensor is like as if like you're boiling yourself. So alcohol, your head's already, you know, swirling, your stomach is probably already swirling. That hot water, it obviously makes you nauseous. But in her sitting in this pool and getting sicker and sicker, hearing Maddie and Nate argue because I believe Kat asked, like, if her and Nate were getting back together and Maddie said no, but Nate said no as well. But Maddie didn't like the way in which Nate said no. Uh, And I quote, you did say no really hasty is what Kat said when um, Maddie asked for confirmation as to how Nate said no. And they're going through this whole like back and forth. And eventually Cassie like throws up all over herself and all over like the people in the pool. And I think she directly uh, threw up on Maddie. They hop out the, the um like she kind of lays out in the pool like in her own mess and her mom and Lexi try to like pull her like drag her out of the pool. Uh, Cat goes to help Maddie, and I thought that was interesting too because Cat's supposed to be both of their friends. Maddie is supposed to be Cassie's friend. Cassie's holding this birthday party in her house, at her house. Maddie and Kat don't even bother to check on Cassie and see about her well-being. So I thought that was very interesting and something to to look at, uh, you know, as a person. Where's like, are these people really your friends? Are they your, your friend friends or are they your friends in name only? And I basically like interrupted the night. But one of the things that happened earlier, um, as I alluded to before, uh, Maddie kind of gave advice to Kat or Kat was able to vent about her feelings towards Ethan. And it got me to thinking, you know, obviously it's been three episodes and this is the fourth. It's only an hour long. They could show but so much, but I feel like they've done Kat's character such a disservice because every time I see her or we see her, it seems like it's, oh my God, my boyfriend, he's so great and so wonderful, but I hate myself. So I hate the fact that he loves me so much. So I, in fact, hate him. And it just, to me, it makes her look like a like a shitty person. And I feel like last season, like, Kat was really shitty towards Ethan, but it was more fleshed out over the span of an entire season. So it didn't make her look bad. And I think this season is not as flushed out, so it's making her look even more horrible. And, you know, it's nothing new. Sometimes, you know, in works of art, like, characters are meant to be portrayed a certain way, but due to lack of screen time and basically wedging their um, story into, into spots where you could fit them, they instead of how they're meant to be portrayed the audience perceives them another way and i think that's something that's being done to um cassie and you know i feel like it's unfair to um barbara 
Ferreira and, you know, much in the same way, I feel like the fact that we haven't seen, you know, the very unguarded and basically sensitive Maddie we saw at the bowling alley outside with Jules. Um, I think that's doing like a disservice to Alexa Demi as well. I, I, you know, but, you know, it's episode four. There's still four more episodes to go so we could see where it goes from here. Perhaps they'll, you know, do something where it's like, oh, all right, now I understand the motivations as to why they were shown this way before. But now this is how things are presently or how it ends up. And the last subplot which was, to me, really done really well last week. And, you know, I think last week uh, it might have, you know, the initial scenes with this, the story of how Cal and, you know, his his uh, best friend in high school, who he also um, had romantic feelings for, um, you know, they showed that part and they also showed how his family came to be which was uh out of pure accident and i'm sure like for some it garnered plenty of sympathy towards his character but to me i think it's the same thing like nate it's like and it's great writing because it it shows uh people's motivations and it shows um feelings that they've been harboring inside but also not ignoring the fact that they're like shitty people. I mean, last week it showed that part with Cal where, you know, yeah, like he's so angry because like his father um, wanted him to be a certain way and he didn't want to be a certain way. And he's guilted, you know, he's essentially forced to start this family with this girl um, and abandon his friendship with this guy that he's in love with. But you flash back forward to today, and by the end of the episode, he's getting, you know, a gun butt, you know, a rifle butt to the face from Ashray, you know, because he's there trying to intimidate, you know, what he think is like this petty, like, drug dealer, and thinking he would just walk in there and just be all Cal and, you know, muscle this kid into, you know, muscle this kid by some sort of means to avenge his son, you know, being assaulted at this party in the first episode, and it didn't go down that way. But in this episode, they did such a bang up job. And I think, you know, when you hire a guy like Eric Dane, who a lot of people know from like Grey's Anatomy, and he's been in plenty of other stuff, like, you know, he's a name. I think when you hire like this type of person to be a parent on a show, uh, where they rarely show the parents. Like, we've seen Rue's mom. We've, again, Marv, again, as I said before, the great Alana Eubach as um, Suze Howard. They've all, the, the parents essentially have been in the background. Like, I can't remember what uh, Kat's parents look like, Maddie's parents look like. I hardly remember what Jules' father looks like. And he, I think he literally was in the last episode um so they don't showcase the parents often but the fact that they took a guy that you know people know from primarily from this popular tv show Grey's Anatomy to play this dad and then um he's not McSteamy 
in the first episode first episode what does he do pick up a teenage um trans girl takes her to a hotel and then has sex with her and videotapes it um so you already knew you're he's not you know this pleasant nice guy you already knew there's a darkness to him and i think this episode they let him like flex his acting ability um to the extreme as i said this is a uh, i felt that this episode on last episode three and four they were like companion pieces and i think for the other two storylines they're companion pieces but i think these two episodes were like a two-part story of cal and how he came to be and how he got to where he is and where he's going uh you know story begins uh he has his head bandaged up again from ashray you know hitting him like 50 times with a shotgun so you figure he's like concussed he's home just drinking whiskey and getting drunk and, and um singing to himself and so we eventually see that he's been having this like i well i always like love like jeep wranglers especially the ones that um you know they, they don't have roofs and like size and shit like that i've always been fascinated with them um because a bunch of people had them back in in the islands uh when i was growing up so apparently he had he had the one we had seen uh that he had in high school sitting in his garage uh just gathering dust and you know i guess whatever epiphany he got from you know getting his head knocked by ashray have to mention that for like the umpteen time he decided to take it for a spin so the dude you know downs a bottle of whiskey um or tequila some kind of liquor he, he downed something and then decided to take it out for a spin out in you know much of the same roads we saw him driving in the previous episode when they were younger um so you already were clued in to um where he was gonna go which was you know that gay bar that was out in the middle of nowhere um off on the side of the road that his friend had taken him to and you know i, I ain't even gonna lie to you i felt like at least like four times in an episode he was gonna die wh- whether it be um by his own hands or just by um somebody else's hands at some some point and you know he goes to this bar and he you know kind of tries to relive his glory days i think like a, a part of him like probably a huge part was hoping that he would have run in to his friend and you know he could finally be he could finally find the happiness that he'd been seeking basically since he was you know 18 years old that he lost when he was 18 years old and you know he goes in there he starts like dancing with you know a younger boy that you know resembled his 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 pal and and this is you know it probably explains why he his you know um his kink was to seek younger youngish men or men you know closer to that you know um 17 18 19 year old range because he was trying to fulfill you know this part of his life that you know he couldn't fulfill i guess you know he was trying to scratch that itch that you know he just couldn't scratch and it 
obviously he was already drunk, got even more drunker. And he tried to relive even more parts of his glory days, such as, you know, his wrestling, you know, going in there and like gloating that he was state champion, et cetera, et cetera. And he tried to wrestle guys in a bar to the point that he was kicked out in the street and locked out of the bar, which sends him back home. And somehow, somewhere he made it back home safe and sound, uh, decides to walk in and take his dick out and just piss all over the foyer, um, which wakes up his uh, first son and then eventually wakes up Nate and then wakes up his wife. And now that his whole family is in front of him, except for his youngest son, I believe, who never, ever gets talked about or mentioned or has been seen. I wonder what that's about. So I'm going to keep an eye out for that. You know, he finally declares to his family that, yeah, I do live an alternative lifestyle on my own. But then, you know, all the while, like his dick is his penis is just out like waving around. And the, I'm assuming the whole the carpet smells like piss. Um, but, you know, he talks about his alternative lifestyle and where he goes to seek happiness. But in doing so, he kind of, you know, relieves himself after relieving himself all over the foyer by pointing out uh, each and every person in that room's uh, dark side or secrets. You know, he points out to the oldest son that he watches all of this extreme porn, like, on his computer and he's like man we looked at the porn like him and his, the mom like looked at the porn on his computer and were just like their jaws dropped um and then he highlighted which was shown to us in a previous episode is that his wife was like a class nine freak like she liked to get down and dirty in a bed but she also had been keeping a correspondence with a camp counselor so perhaps she started a relationship uh, with a counselor at camp and maintain our relationship through letters and you know basically kind of having an emotional affair on him and then he turns to Nate and then starts pointing out his flaws without oddly enough without explicitly naming the things about Nate that you know he he keeps in the dark it's interesting because I was talking this over with like another like fan of the show that, you know, I initially thought because Cal points upwards towards his sons because his, you know, his wife is in a doorway. So she isn't like in the area where he's pointing and Nate and the older brother were like side by side. So I thought he was pointing at the older son and saying, you're the biggest regret of my life. And I thought he was talking either to the oldest son or both of them in just saying children have been the biggest regret of my life or that to the oldest son, you're being born is the biggest regret of my life. Because, you know, from that moment on, I would I was never happy. But what the other founder showed that I thought to said is and I think a lot of other people pointed out is that, no, he was specifically talking to Nate, which I think is incredible to point at 
your middle child as the biggest regret of your life and not like the oldest child or towards your wife who you know some people might say yeah like i blame you because you should have just had an abortion or or we should just put them up for adoption and went our separate ways we weren't going to be happy with each other um so that's what i thought but he really was like pointing towards nate like yo you're the biggest regret of my life you're you specifically have brought all this pain into my life and then he walks out of the house with his with a picture of the family you know i guess when nate and the older brother and the mysterious younger brother were at their youngest he just walks out of the house and i was like the last we seen of cal and you know in this whole like coming out party where he's just like yeah i'm gonna do whatever i want i'm gonna have sex with guys i'm gonna have sex with trans i'm gonna have sex with women i'm gonna do whatever whatever he also like pointed out the fact that it was it was, it was an interesting piece of dialogue where he admits to you know his you know to them his deviant lifestyle um and how he makes himself happy away from his family you know with young men and trans women um i can't remember if he also included uh cisgendered women but he says to the two boys he's like you, you know the two boys says you, should, you shouldn't be saying this in front of for mom like mom doesn't want to hear this blah 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 blah. And he's like he he kind of catches them in a lie where it's like now listen if i came out here and i said i went to a strip club and i banged like this really hot stripper like the two boys would say oh come on dad like just mom doesn't need to hear this but cool man right on and i, I thought that was an interesting thing but you know throughout this whole coming out party uh so to speak i found myself clapping like you know here's this person i don't really like at all and doesn't have any like redeeming qualities but the fact that like he got things off his chest that were weighing on him heavily it was just something really impressive to to watch as like a viewer and i think a lot of us you know have that in us where you know it's a lot of things you kind of hold back and keep to yourself and you 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 know to finally get that off of your chest or that we want to finally get you know shit off of our chest i mean probably not oh like yeah i'm having sex with uh you know i'm a married man with kids but i'm having sex with other kids and trans kids and young boys and all that shit but you know sometimes like there's people in your life that anger you and it's like you know the the frank costanza you know airing of grievances you know you people have disappointed me through the years and now you're gonna hear about it and you know he he definitely aired his grievances out with his whole family and it was just a beautiful scene to see and i think that's what a lot of people loved about the episode but you know we're halfway through four more episodes to go um i felt like last year the, the show picked up towards the middle of the season so we'll see if it does the same thing here where kind of you know starts to 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 really really um become even more intriguing than it already is but you know we'll check out episode five and um, we'll chop that up next week all right award of the week for episode 84 will be going to women 
for proving yet again they are just as qualified as anyone to do anything, which might sound like insulting, but it shouldn't be. What is insulting is there are people who feel that women aren't qualified to do certain things or say certain things, especially now in 2022, in the 21st century, in today's day and age. And the first example of a woman proving that she's just as qualified to do anything as anyone is Mina Keems. Now, I've talked about several times on this show where, you know, there are women who are far more intelligent than men and have far more input and actually bring something to a conversation about sports than most men. One of those people would be Mina Keems. Um, she's regularly on NFL Today on ESPN, and she's been critical of Jimmy Garoppolo, who is the current quarterback of the San Francisco 49ers, and for which a former San Francisco 49er quarterback, Jeff Garcia, criticized her, saying, Oh, you know, regular role stuff. Oh, she's never thrown a football. She's never played in NFL. How is she qualified to say this and that and such or such? Which is interesting because there are a lot of NFL quote unquote experts and reporters who have never played on the NFL who have probably in the past um, celebrated Jeff Garcia in some way, shape, or so, some way, shape, or form, or have been critical in some way, shape, or form. Where he's not going about out, he's not going out of his way to criticize as he has Mina Keems. And I say that she proved that she's qualified to give that criticism because what she said was proven right this past Sunday in the NFC championship game, where in which the San Francisco 49ers essentially played a home game in SoFi Stadium in LA against the Rams in the in the Rams own stadium with probably 60 40 49ers fans in attendance so it was not a hostile environment and with the game on the line a three-point game where essentially Jimmy Garoppolo would just have to get his team to at least the 45 yard line to kick a field goal, to tie it, to take it into overtime. Jimmy Garofalo threw an interception and sealed the fate of the San Francisco 49ers, and they lost the game. The Rams are headed to the Super Bowl, San Francisco, and Jimmy Garofalo are headed home. But Jeff Garcia, who is mostly known to people like me for being the guy that probably sullied uh, Terrell Owens' um, career stats because he was not a good quarterback at all during Terrell Owens' um, first few years in the NFL. Other than that, he's known for taking the Eagles to the playoffs uh, during his time as an NFL journeyman. You know, I don't know. He's just very forgettable in the grand scheme of the NFL. And my second example of women proving that they are qualified to do anything um isn't even exactly specifically a certain woman in particular but tommy laren a right-wing princess went out of her way to criticize joe biden's decision and uh full-blown 
statement that or declaration that when Stephen Breyer, current uh, Supreme Court justice, retires, he is planning on replacing him with a black woman. Um, throughout history, it's been essentially all men until, you know, a white woman, uh, Ruth Bader Ginsburg, God rest her soul, she became a Supreme Court justice. Uh, Thurgood Marshall, he became a Supreme Court justice. Not a big, not a big fan of this guy, but Clarence Thomas, he became a Supreme Court justice. And Sonia Sotomayor, who's near and dear to me as a fellow Bronxite, grew up here in the Bronx, went to uh, Cardinal Spellman, became a Supreme Court justice, saved baseball, some would say. And eventually, one of Trump's appointees, Amy Cooper Barrett, who was super duper uh, less qualified than most of the other judges on the Supreme Court justice, she was selected. But it's mostly been white men. So this declaration that he was going to choose or nominate only black women um, was pretty bold, but also um, well needed. And Tommy Lahren's criticism was that Kamala Harris essentially is a failure. So if he does pick a black woman, like she would also be a failure, which is some idiotic logic, because you know what, in any uh, position of authority, they've all been dominated by straight white males uh, throughout history, ones that succeeded, ones that failed. So if the idea is that if one failure was able to be in a position and fail that any other person like that person would also fail. If that was the case, then when the first white man failed, then they would have just stopped there. And clearly they didn't. And that's not to call Kamala Harris a failure. I'm not a big fan of her. I'm not a big fan of Joe Biden at this point either. But I will say it's only been roughly a little you know a few days more than a year into their administration um so time will tell whether or not their failures are they heading that way probably will they keep that way probably not but to say that if one black woman that you've perceived to be a failure means that every black woman would be a failure is very short-sighted and very ignorant but, you know, God forbid somebody tell her that. Um, and that's why I'm giving women a word of the week, because they have proven every time that they've been given an opportunity that they are more than capable as anyone to fulfill these positions. We've seen women uh, in virtually every you know facet of life um and more recently we're seeing them in male dominated sports or sports that are mostly male populated like there's nfl coaches who are women there are mlb coaches who are women the yankees just hired um a female manager the first female manager in the minor leagues so you know, women are more than capable, if not sometimes even more capable than some of the men in their own professions. And that's why I'm giving them award a week. But honorable mention for this week, 
first time in a long time. Goes to ASAP Rocky for doing something a lot of men dreamed of, which is uh, knocking up Rihanna. Um, she's on her way to being a billionaire. My um, thoughts and prayers go out to Drake and Chris Brown in these moments because I know they are hurting. But speaking of her being a billionaire, I did order some underwear, some boxers from Fenty. And that was like three weeks ago and I haven't arrived yet. So I'm just hoping that they come uh, before the baby does. But God bless them. It's cool. It's, you know, awesome. You know, not as big of a fan of ASAP Rocky as I used to be, but Rihanna's always been, you know, a pretty awesome human being. And, you know, West Indian, fellow West Indian. So shout out to them. And our husband, award of the week. Final thoughts this week, you know, euphoria, such interesting stuff. As I said before, the middle of the season last year is when, like, I think it really, like, hit its stride. And, you know, I think it's still in its stride. Like, these first four episodes have been pretty awesome thus far. So if they only get better, then the show will just, you know, basically outdo itself, which is something I would think is you know, impossible as a viewer. So I'll keep following it. And we'll, we'll check it on that next week. I love talking about that show. I'm breaking it down, talking to fellow fans and getting their, um, you know, ideas and thoughts. So shout out to y'all if y'all are watching us and or listening to this and hearing um, me regurgitate the, the things you've said to me. Brian Flores, this is going to be an interesting story to see. I mean, to me, I think, Though you know the only remedy to this is probably the most impossible, which is for the owners to just be better people, and you know that 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 seems like it's gonna be like far fetched, but you know a vast majority of the owners in the NFL are white, and I think in that that also needs to to change, and. You know, I, I know there's a rule in the NFL where no corporation or group, there has to be like a sole owner or principal owner in the NFL. But maybe if they loosen our role where, you know, more people of color of means and wealth could buy into NFL franchises and they could be, you know, you know, there would be an actual board for NFL teams and decisions could be made. You know, perhaps you include people of color or women or, you know, all of these underrepresented groups so that teams don't make these type of mistakes. But I, I, I just do hope that some good comes out of this class action lawsuit. And it'll be interesting to see, you know, who joins in. And we already, as much as I, you know, joked about him, Hugh Jackson, he says he's willing to join in on this class action suit and bring light to a lot of things he faced when he was the head coach in Cleveland. You know, I do have respect for Hugh Jackson at the end of the day. He was actually, to me, you know, regardless of his 3-36 record, uh, he was actually my choice for the Giants, you know, around the same time he went to the Browns and the Giants went in a other direction on I can't remember if it was during the judge hire or the Shermer hire but 
you know, I'm a fan of him as a person. So, you know, I'm I'm curious to see the other GMs. And, you know, it's not out of the realm of possibility that, you know, this, this is really courageous because Brian Flores, you know, I, I feel like you could give him a lot more trust and belief that he's telling the truth in the fact that he's still up for NFL jobs. Like he's still up for the New Orleans job. He's still up for the Houston job. And he didn't wait. He just, he had enough and, you know, silent enough. I don't know. Maybe like the Giants um, picking Dable over him and him finding out through those errant texts from Belichick were the thing that probably drove him to be like, you know what, this is wrong and I need to do something about it. But, you know, he should be commended for the fact that he's trying to do something about it. And keep on a lookout for order week on our YouTube channel. Please check out all our fascinating videos, fascinating videos on YouTube. A lot more bear reviews coming up. And hopefully a lot of stuff that we had, you know, on a back burner, but I'm excited for next week. Hopefully I could do something that I've been trying to do for months. I can finally get it done and you'll find out that next week. But this has been episode 84 of Shug Me The Mooney. Shug Me The Mooney. Shug Me The Mooney. <laughs>